O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's Psalm 131, which along with Psalm 132 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, August the 19th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our study in the life of David in 2 Samuel 19, the first 23 verses. We're also looking at the life of Paul in Acts 24, verses 1 to 23, and then in our gospel lesson, we're in Mark 12, 28 to 34. Lot to cover today. Lots and lots of ground in all this. So what we've got, remember, is is that that uh, the the forces that that were arrayed with David have defeated the forces of Absalom <clears throat> down in the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan from the main bulk of the land, the place where the they're, they're in the place where two of the tribes decided to stay behind on the other side of the Jordan having agreed in advance to lead their brothers into battle and to not settle that land until they had helped their brothers take the land proper. So here we are in, in 2 Samuel 19, 1 to 23. Remember what happened yesterday was is that Absalom had gotten caught by the hair in an oak tree and Joab and his armor bearers ran him through and killed him in that place and David was mourning for his son. And so what, what happens here is, is that, that Joab is told, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. What he should have been doing is rejoicing and congratulating the people who accomplished this victory. Instead, the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And so the people kind of snuck back into the city of Mahanaim where they had been staying. They, they were ashamed because of the death of Absalom. Remember, David had said to deal gently with his son Absalom, and, and Joab had done exactly the opposite of that. Uh, and rightfully so. <laughs> this man led a revolt against David. He, he was not to be trusted at any level. And so, it, but, but David loved his son Absalom, and it's, it's commendable the level he loves his son. But the problem is that, that his son's rebellion had cost 22,000 men their lives. Now, this is all part of David's failure as a parent to discipline his children, but it's also a result of David's sin with Bathsheba. And so Joab comes into the house of the king and says, You've today covered with shame the faces of your servants, David who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you'd be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go... Not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that's come upon you from your youth until now. And so David did. He did as Joab encouraged him to do, and this is the second time he's done it. Remember, there was another time when David had not gone out to battle after Uriah the Hittite was killed. Joab said, you come down and lead these people into battle. You've got to do it, David, if you're going to continue to be the leader. And Joab was taking a second role in all this. He could have led a revolt and a rebellion against David as well, but he didn't do it. In two different occasions, he could have gotten the glory, but 
but put David in the forefront, and David listened to his counsel and did it, and the people came came to him. And so as they're coming, now people are coming there and saying, hey, you know what? The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land for Absalom from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? we got to get in front of this. we got to get David back <clears throat> because he's truly the king. We really messed up here. And so David sends messengers to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, who he had said to remain in Jerusalem, and, and says, hey, ask the elders of Judah why they haven't come and, and were the last people to bring me back into Israel. You're my brothers. You're my bone and flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And then he said to Amasa, who remembers Joab's cousin, he says, aren't you my... Amasa was the, the commander of the army for Absalom. He said, are you not my bone and flesh? So is Joab. God do to me and more also. If you're not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab, he's replacing Joab because Joab... Uh, was the one who was responsible for the death of Absalom. And it's awful that David chose to do this because Joab has been a very faithful and trusted commander for him and successful. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah so that they sent word to the king, return both you and your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan. So he's on the other side of the Jordan. Judah comes across the Jordan to Gilgal to bring him back. That's his tribe. And then so Shimei, remember the guy that was cursing David as he left? Because he, he said, you stole the throne of Saul. And he's a Benjamite, the same tribe as Saul. So he hurries down to come and meet David. And then also with a thousand men from Benjamin. Zeba, the servant of the house of Saul, the one who served Mephibosheth. And the one who said Mephibosheth didn't come out to greet you because he was trying to reclaim his kingdom. Zeba, his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring the king's household over. And Shimei falls down before the king and says, hey, I'm really sorry. Don't hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord left Jerusalem. Don't let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows I've sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the king. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Abishai was also the one who wanted to kill Shimei on the front end. When he was out there cursing him, and David said no. David says, no, not today. No one's going to be killed in Israel this day. And he looks at him and says, you shall not die. And then the king gave his oath, and he did. But skip forward to Second Kings 1 and see what David says about Shimei. He tells Solomon, you're going to have to deal with him. And he does the same with Solomon about Joab. David's willing to, to let Joab go because of what he considers treachery in this murder of Absalom. But, wow, if anybody ever deserved it, it would have been Absalom, right? I mean, this is a guy who, who, who caused civil war and caused thousands and thousands of his fellow Israelites to die. And yet David still grieves Absalom long after his death. In the gospel, we've got um, Jesus in the temple, right? This is the, the after the, um, the events of Palm Sunday and all that. So one of the scribes comes up. Here's them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well. And disputing with one another would have been the, I mean, remember, they ran everybody at him. Remember that? They, they, so they sent the chief priests and the scribes and, and those guys. And then the Herodians and the Pharisees come. And then the Sadducees come. 
So they've got pretty much every Jewish faction at the time has taken a run at Jesus here and, and tried to trip him up and cause him to commit blasphemy and to be diminished in the eyes of the people, and they've all failed. So one of the scribes came up and hearing them, that's those groups, disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. He adds a little bit to it there, adds with all your strength to it. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments greater than these. So the scribe said, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and that there's none other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, understanding, and strength, and love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, which is exactly the word of Micah. It's also the words of the Psalms. That, that that's more important. Those things are more important than bringing sacrifices because, you, you, you know, it doesn't matter how much you say you love the Lord by taking all these things to him, and making all those sacrifices, no, you've got to have the heart right. It has to be set on those two things, loving the, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then also loving your neighbor as yourself. And the reason those two things are linked together is because your neighbor is created in the image of God. And so you love God by loving your neighbor, and you love your neighbor by loving God. So that will cause you to keep the other commandments. It'll cause you to have a heart like God's for those whom he has created. And so that's why those two things are singularly important. And, and all the other commandments are bound up in those. It doesn't mean they're less important, but, but it means those two things override and, and hang over all those commandments. You don't steal from your neighbor because you love your neighbor. You don't covet his wife and all that because you love your neighbor. You don't commit adultery because you love your neighbor. You don't slander your neighbor because you love your neighbor. It's all those things lumped into one thing, but it's under the heading of love your neighbor as yourself. These two things are the most important things you can do. Now, that takes some unpacking, right? It takes some unpacking about how do I love my neighbor? And Jesus unpacks that in some ways in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, but also later, because in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells you, for instance, to, to uh, if, if a wicked man strikes you on the cheek, then you're to give him the other cheek as well. But in Matthew 18, what he says is that if your brother sins against you, confront that sin. So those two things have to be balanced against one another. Every man, woman, and child is my neighbor. But the way I treat my neighbor is different depending on whether they're a brother or not. And so, so when Jesus says this, you've got to love your neighbor, there's different ways of loving the neighbor. If the, lover, if the neighbor is a brother and a sister, you confront the sin for their benefit and for yours. We have a different relationship with brothers and sisters than we do with just those who are otherwise neighbors. And, and, but it's important that we love our neighbors, and that's the reason Jesus says, love your enemies. Because they're your neighbor. And so it's important that we that we consider this appropriately. And, and so this scribe has stepped out on his own outside all these factions and come to Jesus and, and he wants to know something. I believe it's a genuine question. And the reason I believe that is because Jesus, after he makes this statement you're, that, where he says, you're right, teacher. Then Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. 
you understand things. But you've got to do one more thing, right? I mean, the thing is, you've got to accept me now as more than rabbi. And so after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. I mean, wise, right? I mean, you, you got your hats handed to you, fellas. Um, probably be best if you go home and lick your wounds and you leave him alone and you recognize that he has a wisdom far greater than yours. And so, so Jesus affirms this scribe who comes to him, and, and I believe the scribe came honestly asking that question because he wanted, he had seen Jesus's, quote, brilliance in responding to them. And he wanted to know something genuinely. And this is a wise scribe who asked that because he understood completely, didn't try to dispute with Jesus at all. He agreed with him on that some summary. And that's the reason Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. You, you, you're a teachable spirit. It, it's important that we retain the ability to be taught. David had to be taught by Joab. He didn't learn the lesson completely because he still seeks vengeance against Joab through his son Solomon, still seeks vengeance against his enemy Shimei here <clears throat> when he speaks to his son Solomon on his deathbed. But a teachable spirit, a humble and teachable spirit is the most important thing. And here David did humble himself and allowed Joab to speak into his life. Even though he's the king and Joab is only his commander, which is a great thing, but not according, not when you're the king. So then in the Acts lesson, remember what we've got is, is that there's a, uh, there's a group of people, 40 of them, who decided that it took an oath, in fact. Uh, and I'm curious to know how they got out of that oath because it would have been a costly thing. And, and once you take an oath before the Lord and then it's, they, you confirmed it to the council, I'm not sure how you get out of that, but they must have. So anyway, they confirm an oath they're going to kill Paul. And so the, the tribune uh, has then sent uh, Paul away when he hears of this. And so now he comes before Felix. And Felix says, I'm going to wait until the Jews get here to figure out what's going on. So five days later, the high priest Ananias, remember the one Paul had called a whitewash wall, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, who would have been a, a Greek. They laid before the governor their, their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. Since through you we enjoy much peace, speaking to Felix, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. So he's flattering him. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. We've found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout all the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. None of that's true. Paul didn't stir up riots. Paul spoke, preached the gospel. Riots happened because those people came to oppose him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything we accuse him. So the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. I trust you. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went in to worship Jerusalem. And they didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or the synagogues of the city. Neither can they prove to you what they're bringing now against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, according to the way, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets. I mean, that's a powerful statement. That's, that's the thing that they really accused him of, is trying to overthrow those things and deny that they had any force or effect. And Paul's saying, no, 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 I believe all that. 
I have a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. And then he continues, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. He's been gone a while. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. I had done exactly what was required for me to be in the temple without any crowd or tumult. I'm just going into the temple. But some Jews from Asia, the ones who are always stirring up all the stuff for Paul on his missionary journeys, whenever he goes and begins to win over the people, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. That's what caused the division and, and the upset, he says. Not me. Them. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that's a kind of a surprising thing to read, right? I mean, you get this Roman governor who, who understands the way, which is us, Christianity. It put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, the one who sent Paul there, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurions that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix has, has heard all this and said, you know, I, I can't sort this out. I do know what this man's talking about. I understand it. I mean, he found the right audience to come before because Felix had an understanding of the way. And so what did he understand about Judaism? How did he understand all of that? But, but the re again, why is a serpent innocent as doves, right? I mean, that, that's exactly what's got to happen. That's why Joab's counsel to David is so important. He sees you're going to lose the people if you don't get out there right now. He sees that. Jesus finds this scribe to be one of those who, who looks around, sees the divisions and the discussion and all this stuff that's going on. And here's these groups disputing with one another. And he, he says, there's no fruit in that. And so he goes to the one that he calls teacher and asks for wisdom. I mean, it, it's, it's a profound statement that this guy just goes to Jesus to ask this question. He, I think he's honestly seeking the answer. He, he, he is wise Certainly, and Jesus affirms that he's wise. You're not far from the kingdom of heaven. But, but he's innocent also, I believe, when he comes to Jesus. He, he, he has come seeking knowledge and seeking understanding. And, and then here with Paul, Paul sees what's going on. He sees the people who are accusing him. He sees his judge. And he knows how to speak into those situations. We've got to be able to discern the times. It's important for us. In order to be able to navigate successfully the brave new world that we're entering, We've got to be those people. We have to understand the environment in which we operate in order to preach the gospel well, because that's the primary thing for all of us.